general nerdery. So I was buying toilet paper as I left the store earlier today, and I suddenly had a flashback to the early days of the pandemic. Because, you know, we don't live in town. So when we Mm -hmm. buy toilet paper, we buy like six plus rolls at a time because that in case of emergency suddenly means a like 30 minute drive instead of like, well, got to go down the block. Mm -hmm. And I had a moment of like, am I being that dick? Am I buying two? Wait, nope. It's not 2020 anymore. It's okay (laughs) to buy toilet paper in bulk again. Yeah. Of all the weird flashbacks from COVID that's, I mean, not that COVID's completely over or anything like that, but like of all the weird flashbacks, that's not the one that I expected. It's it's kind of that actually kind of came up for me in a different way this week. Oh, this is this is just a weird tangent now. That, Was it just gas for you? Because no. I've also seen people like loading up trash bags. I'm like that's gonna go badly. No, it was no, it was actually also about the toilet paper, and it was just uh, uh we were given a reminder uh, like not to hold things in the back to to buy, mm. and my mind immediately went to. Except in the early days of a pandemic <laughs> when you're making sure your coworkers have toilet paper. Right. Well, especially because we have gotten so good about not using plastic as much as possible, mm-hmm. so we have to buy the individually wrapped mm. toilet papers and a little... But that does mean just, like, taking an armful and just, like, filling your... <laughs> like, it's fine. Mine. <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. Anyways, welcome to General Nerdery, your podcast about liking things, and now apparently toilet paper. Where are your? I gen- mean, I like toilet paper. I do. It's very, You know what? You don't think about how much you like toilet paper until you don't got it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Anyways, we're your generals of nerdery. I'm Zach. I'm Tyler. And we are here to talk about probably anything but, but who knows? It'll probably come up again. Anyways. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, I made a pun there. Oh, God. Moving <laughs> forward now. <laughs> Uh, what have we been ingesting? What have we been... In- I don't know why I was having such a hard... I'm still having a hard time thinking about what I've been ingesting. It's just been, I think, a lot of the Is same. Is it Ring again? Mostly. So, I uh, know I've started to switch things. I felt like I was getting close to burnout on Elden Ring. Fair. And I don't want to feel that. But, like, I've done almost everything I want to do in the game. There's still a couple things. Um, and I have two achievements left until I 100% it which is actually only doing one thing because one of the achievements is forgetting all the other achievements. Good Lord. <laughs> uh, they're mostly tied to just fighting bosses. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not like I went and like collected 500 of some weird random items scattered throughout the game. It was, no, I just went here and like kicked this dragon's ass and got an achievement for it. But so, yeah, so I started playing some different games uh, so Wreckfest has been fun. You saw that That's when the, I picked the it. demo derby game. Yeah, uh, I will probably be buying after watching you play that game. Like when I watched the little trailer for it, when I saw it up on Game Pass, it looked like it was going to be a little bit more of like a spiritual sequel to some of the early Burnout titles, mm-hmm. like Burnout Revenge and shit. Because like I liked Paradise, but I didn't think it was. Paradise was a better racing game and not as good of a making others crash game, in my mm. opinion. That's a fine line to play when you're going to make that kind of, like, murder fest game. Mm-hmm. So I, I downloaded it thinking that it was going to be a little bit more like that. It's not, but it's also still fun. Mm-hmm. Like, the first thing you have they have you do is a fucking um, 
Lawnmower Demo Derby? That's the thing that I saw. And I was like, oh, cool, then I am playing more of this to see what other fucking wacky things they ha- throw at me. What I like about that intro is, one, it's just not that serious and not that difficult, so it's okay. And then two, it's letting you know immediately this game is not going to be that serious. Mm-hmm. Like, there is the kind of Death Race-style game that they're like, this is nothing but pure seriousness. This is not that. This is, no. this. but it's also not completely cartoony mm-hmm. either. It's like a fine it's, line. it's treated as a decently serious racing title, but mm, you're still racing. You're not racing around in these like super fancy cars. You're racing around in fucking demo derby cars, oh, and most of the time, the bonus objectives for any given level include damaging your other opponents. So, I've got like eight new Mario Kart levels to play, and I'm kind of holding off on them because friend of the show, Yui, is going to be visiting Mm. in a couple of days. And so we'll just be like, all right, neither one of us has played these courses. It's time for the old rivalries to return. What rank did we give Yui? Or did they give themselves? Um, I still call them a lieutenant commander all of the time, Mm. so I think they're still lieutenant commander. Okay. Um, (laughs) LTC. Um, I'm going to bounce off the games for just a second to mention finishing Sandman finally last night since they dropped that extra episode. That was one of mine. I can't believe I finished that before you did. Uh, I was holding off to watch with Marge. Mm. And um, she was squirreled away most of the week because her entire family got COVID. So. Oh, ooh, that's rough. See, Cece got to the point of like, honey, I love you. But Sandman is the only comic I know better than you do. <laughs> it's time. And I'm like, I know, I'd have to watch Shorzy for this. <laughs> like that, that, was a, that was the thing for me. I was like, ah, I've read the book. I know what happens. Especially was, when seeing how, how faithful they were doing it so far. I was like, cool, so I know what happens. Other than making the Corinthian a much bigger character. And right. like, a couple of changes of how they approach stuff. Just And even then, that makes sense if you're going to do an entire season oh, yeah. of TV. Like, well, and just like, you know... Neil's not the same person he was mm-hmm. when he wrote that in the 80s, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So some of the ways they approach stuff. But uh, it was actually really interesting for me because, I mean, we've talked about I've read the first volume of Sandman a couple of times, and I've started the second one once or twice. And I'm always like, this is really good. And then something pulls me away. It's like one mm-hmm. of my cursed comics. In the same way that I will never play a cleric in D&D. Like, it's the best way to destroy a campaign. If I'm like, I built a cleric, someone's going to die and we won't play. Um, <laughs> but it was in- really interesting to be the one in the room who didn't know what was going on. Because mm-hmm. usually something will happen. I'll laugh. CC will give me a look and I'll be like, oh, well, in the comics, this, this thing. Or like... You know, watched uh, She-Hulk and they referenced something, but she's never seen the Edward Norton Incredible Hulk. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, so this is what that is. I'm going to have to rewatch the entire season at some point by myself so I can squee as hard as I want to without <laughs> interrupting somebody else's experience. It was kind of fun. I actually legitimately enjoyed because I was like, I don't really know what's going to happen here. I do hope at least from time to time as it goes forward, they do more of these kind of just weird, like, in-between season drops because there's a number of stories that that would make sense for. Mm-hmm. Like, it kind of makes sense to do that with uh, Dream of a Thousand Cats and Yeah, Calliope. that was going to be 
Calliope, Calliope ties back into what happens later. And but. Calliope, you could have fit into a regular season, regular episode pretty easy. But I think it would break the flow of... I don't disagree. I'm just saying, mm-hmm. like, but, you know, you could do it. Dream of a Thousand Cats is just out there. That one kind of has to be its own right thing. And, like, I could see them doing the same thing with uh, Facade and Three Septembers into January and a few of the others. Arthur Deverell was so fucking good yeah. in Calliope, and I mostly know him as Rory, mm-hmm. and I kind of can't see him as not Rory, and I'm keeping like, no, Rory. <laughs> so, good. I'm always glad when actors do stuff like that and force me to not just see them as whatever role. You know, David Tennant as the Purple Man for is another great example. Yeah, yeah. There's been rumors... He might get brought back in some way in the Disney Plus. That would be really hard to do. I agree. <laughs> I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying that would be really hard to do. But then back, so I've lost a few hours of sleep this week because of a different game I picked up on my fucking Elden Ring break. Do, do you know Slay the Spire? Have you heard of this? Not enough to know anything. Okay, so it's a roguelite deck builder turn-based RPG. Explain to me what roguelite means. It's one of those things that someone explained to me once years ago, and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. So I'm not sure what makes the difference between a full-on roguelike versus roguelite. Okay. To To throw that straight out. Just give me the... But it's basically, you don't, like, you don't save progress, basically. It's all about runs. You die, you're done, yes. you start okay. at the beginning. Okay, so it's like Hades. Yes. Cool. I, I knew that was roguelike, but I didn't necessarily know what that meant. And uh, you know what? Honestly, while we talk about this, I'm going to just, like, look it up real quick just to see what the internet actually tells me is the real thing. Because I... I just think of it as kind of like how we used to play games back in the day before save systems existed. <laughs> Mega Man style is how I think of it that way. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I'm like, all right, here's your like save co- key code. And I'm like, I'm not going to remember that. That's like 10 letters long. Okay, so Wikipedia is telling me that a roguelike is a subgenre of role-playing computer game traditionally characterized by a dungeon crawl through procedurally generated levels turn-based gameplay, grid-based movement, and permanent death of the player character. Most roguelikes are based on high fantasy narrative, reflecting their influence from tabletop games. And then I think rogue... Yeah. So then roguelites, I think, have a little bit more continuity between runs compared to a like. Okay. That makes sense. Um, Thank you for answering the thing that I've been too embarrassed I don't know how to answer, but... Now I'm asking on a no, very just, public forum, so everyone who I've been too embarrassed to ask is listens to this show. No, look, I get it. Like, one day I just heard all these kids at work using these terms about video games. I'm like, what is this sub? What is this genre? Like, I've been playing games my whole life. What the fuck are you kids talking about? And then it, it's kind of sunk in. I'm like, oh, so you kids are just... You, okay. You've learned what it was when we used to play games. I have the Mega Man theme music stuck in my head now. Mm-hmm. The, like, select mo- uh, select boss battle. Anyway, so Slay the Spire. You're 
making your way up this tower. It's a series of dungeon rooms, basically. And, but it's a turn-based deck builder. <laughs> so you start with a character, and that character has a deck. And every turn of the battle, you have, like, three energy, and you can spend that energy on whatever cards you have in your hand, and that's what throws up your defense or, like, your attacks or that sort of thing. You defeat an enemy, you get to draw a card in that room. There's other rooms that are, like, merchants where you can buy extra cards or, like, relics that give extra effects or, like, sell your cards to keep your deck small so that you have a better chance of, like, running into your combos and shit. So it's kind of like mixing... Hades with Magic the Gathering and Final Fantasy. See, I was going to say this sounds like Yu-Gi-Oh meets that Bruce Lee movie where he fights uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That's also a good <laughs> example of what it is. <laughs> Which one is that? That's, uh... uh... Wow. <laughs> Just the biggest blank. I feel like I'm Arthur Darville at the end of that episode. <laughs> Dude, the part where he just starts... Spitting out ideas is one, horrifying, two, satisfying, and three, full of ideas that I legitimately actually want to read. Oh, I was waiting for that part the entire episode. I'm like, how many of the ones straight from the comic is he going to spit out? Answer a number of them. Game of Death? Yes, Game of Death. That helps that it was his ver uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's very first movie <laughs> and Bruce Lee's very last movie. But yeah, you're just... You're taking character up the tower. It's kind of an RPG. There's like strength and defense and all this stuff that you do kind of build along the way. But then at the end of it, you get so many points that go towards unlocking other possible cards that like other possible cards that you can possibly draw for the character. Not that you're guaranteed to get, but that can come up in later runs that tend to be a little bit more powerful than than what you have from the get-go. So you can put together better runs as you get into the game. Oh, let's see. My big thing was um, Sandman. Mm -hmm. So I guess... Oh, uh, She-Hulk. Mm. Watched both episodes. Have you seen any of that? I haven't yeah. watched it yet. It breaks the fourth wall in a way that does not annoy me. Okay. It references... It's the first thing to reference the fact that Edward Norton is no longer playing the Hulk. Mm. There's a line... And this isn't a giveaway of... Uh, Hulk's is like, oh, I was a different person back then. Literally. And, you know, in the context of the show, it's he was, you know, Bruce Banner and Savage Hulk, not Smart Hulk. Right. But also it breaks over to uh, She-Hulk. Uh, what is that? Titania Masley? Yeah, Tatiana Maslany. Maslany, thank you. Who just mugs at the camera, just gives the look of like, ah! And it's... <laughs> Really fucking funny, and CC did not understand why Chris and I were laughing. I, I'm really liking it so far, and I, I mean, I'm an easy sell on most of these Marvel TV shows, but it's better than several of them that I've watched. I still haven't seen Loki. It's definitely better than Falcon and Winter Soldier, which again I enjoyed. I'm enjoying letting them be a little more lighthearted. Mm -hmm. and I'm enjoying as much as I like that they actually addressed the blip in a lot of things. I'm enjoying a show that feels no need whatsoever to really address the blip. Okay. Like there's, yeah, yeah. there's a brief bit where mm -hmm. um, Hulk mentions hanging out with Tony and building this bar 
in Mexico, not like a full on bar, but like a, a private bar in his mm-hmm. little area during the blip. But that's it. And the the show creators were like, well, we don't really other shows have done it. So there's not really anything like mm-hmm. that we would do better. So at least at this point, don't really plan to talk about it. Uh, that does remind me I did. I didn't watch it all, and I couldn't tell you what exactly happens in it, but I did see large chunks uh, of the first episode of Miss Marvel. And I really liked what I saw. Okay. That move, that episode moves at a pretty quick pace. I could see that being Well, it was, uh, my, it was a couple weekends ago, mm-hmm. and uh, my dad and stepmom and my little sister were in town, and... We just wanted, we were hanging out in the, here in the apartment for a little bit while we were trying to figure out where we were going to go eat. And the adults had to do some discussion. So, so the you kid put Miss Marvel to, yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good one for her. Mm-hmm. That's a very. Yeah. She seemed like she was getting into it. I just, I could only catch so much of it myself because we were making plans for the day. So. I, I actually really think you would enjoy that one. Mm-hmm. It's very, I want to rewatch it more in a go because, you know, we were doing the once a week mm-hmm. and it's sometimes fun to watch a second time. Where you just sit down and do it in like two sessions instead of. Yeah, I know I was really enjoying what I saw. It's uh, so colorful. I'm just, such a sucker for colorful. <laughs> I just had to keep getting distracted. No, absolutely. So. You're doing it all. Um, and then my final thing is I watched the opening episode of Lower Decks season three. Right, which I'm probably going to do tonight. It's really good. It is chock full of references. They're. The most obvious ones is about 18 different references to Star Trek 3, which is the mm-hmm. one where they steal the Enterprise to go save Spock, and to Star Trek First Contact, where they get one of the actors to come back. They get, uh, what is that, Cromwell, I think? Oh, um, James Cromwell? If that, hold on. We're pausing to Google a lot of stuff today. Like Thal Pig? Well, now I'm doubting myself, but yes, I believe so. Yep. They got James Cromwell to come back to play his character from first. Well, he to play a uh, hologram of his character from First Contact. That just decided what my recommendation is going to be at the end of this episode. Is it, babe? No, it's not. <laughs> James Cromwell has done a lot of Star Trek, so that's not wildly surprising. Here's a hint: it's his first movie role. Oh wow! I've, I don't even have a beginning of an idea of what that would be. He's Zephram Cochran to me. Um, I will say what kind of they've been treating. We mentioned this when we watched the season three trailer. I don't remember if that ever actually made it onto an episode or not, or if that's on our lost episode, but no, I think that should be on an episode. I think we saved it for the Star Trek ones for that of at first, it looked like the whole third season or a big part of it was going to be connected to the teaser at the end of. Oh yeah. uh, The second they finished that in an episode. Okay. They have no time for like, <laughs> like, all right, this was fun. They do what's just fucking wild to me. They have a mention of Kelsey Grammer's character from a single scene in Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, wow. Morgan Bateman, the commander of the Bozeman, which we actually talked oh, about over on right. Red Balloons, has not been mentioned since fucking season like four or five of Next Gen. And they random drop of like, thanks to the Black Ops mission of more of Captain Bateman and this and this. And I'm like, <laughs> and the first time I heard it, I was like, 
I know that name. What is that reference? And I wasn't paying much attention. The second time I'm like, son of a bitch. Also, he's like 75 years out of date. Why do you have him in a like super advanced <laughs> starship mission. doing black ops mission? I mean, it's get the pack led, so he's probably okay. But like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're fine. If it's against the pack leads, then he looks like he's doing pretty good for himself in the uh, Star Trek lower decks animation style. Hell yeah. That's awesome. We don't got shit for trailers today. Well, yeah, we ain't got anything. <laughs> it is, and we knew this was going to happen. It was. It's shortly after San Diego Comic Con. This is the quiet time. I'm okay with this. I'm really fine with it. I'm okay with this. So uh, I suppose let's take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk about Jingo. Bye, Jingo. Let's do it. We don't want to fight, but by Jingo, if we do, we've got the ships, we've got the men, and got the money too. I had to play that part for McDermott's war song after we read this. Uh, yeah, y'all just heard part of some old timey shit as long. Which you originally played to me with no context. Oh, yeah, before no context. Um, no, so that song is the origin of using Jingo. Bye, like, Jingo. Yeah. And it's an old, like a song from 18, what did I say? 1870s? 1870s? Yeah, 1871, 1877, something like that about the British getting all excited about the Russo-Turkish war breaking out so that they could go down and do shit. And it's... Wasn't that one of the wars that went extremely badly for them? Yeah, probably. But it, it's... it's So it's referenced by Lord Vetinari. Mm-hmm. Well, first off, the is it Lord Russ that keeps saying by Jingo? Yes, I'm pretty sure he's the one who does. It's either him or Dr. Downey, but Downey's not a major factor in this. Well... There's there's a part in that scene where Vetinari says, we have no ships, we have no men, we have no money, too. And that part of the song we just heard is, uh, we don't want to fight, but by Jingo, if we do, we've got the ships, we've got the men, we've got the money, too. <laughs> Terry Pratchett, you piece of shit. <laughs> um, okay, so, if you have not caught on yet, because I don't think we've actually mentioned yet... For this episode, we have read the book Jingo by Terry Pratchett, which is the fourth Nightwatch book. It is the fifth Nightwatch story. They do this tiny little story that takes place after Guards Guards that's literally like two pages long. Mm. It's fun, but it's... Two pages? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And it is the 21st Discworld book in general. Yes. Uh, To be honest, and this is a... It's a book about war, and specifically, it's a book about war in Clatch, which is very obviously the Middle East. Yes. To be honest, I originally thought this book was written post-2001. Oh, yeah, I mean, I could see that. Uh, You know, because, well, I was born in 1988. 2001 is when I kind of started paying attention to international politics, and it colors everything. But... If it was an American, it would have been. But he's a Brit, so he has his own weird war and imperialism in the Middle East stuff to kind of work through here. And um, the complicated relationship of uh, Middle East immigrants in Britain. Oof, yeah. And how much the British love curry. Also, a lot of <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia messages or like references. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of Lawrence of Arabia messages. Yeah, 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 references. 
it's interesting. I mean, this book was written in 1996. Lawrence of Arabia, I feel like, is not talked about nearly as positively today, 20 years mm-hmm. later, than he was even back in the 90s. And I mean, it's not like we're like, Lawrence of Arabia is a straight-up villain. He might be. I don't actually yeah. know. But that there is a, like, he came. I don't know. This book plays a fine line, and we've talked about this before, of Terry Pratchett has a little bit of privilege when it comes to, you know... This one honestly felt better. I was going to mention did it, but, better than... Uh, Men at Arms yeah. is the one where we spent the whole book talking about... Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, there is still... Terry Pratchett is a white British man from who's old enough to remember when chillings were still a thing. So, imperialism's a thing there. Mm-hmm. No, I thought this one actually did a lot better. I thought, I actually thought it was written post 2001 because of how much better he seemed to do with that sort of thing. Not sort. necessarily because of the, the, the whole, specific themes. Yeah. There is somewhere, and it's happened somewhere around book, I would say probably between 12 and 15 where Terry always tried. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he... But, oh, uh, yeah, absolutely always uh, tried. But You I, can tell that from the game. He becomes more aware of stuff, mm-hmm. and he becomes better about it. And I think this book was a big examination of his own unconscious biases. And, I mean, just un- British unconscious biases. Because, like... We'll talk about it. Colin does not come across as a good person here for most of it, but it's never any kind of like active malevolency, but just kind of the the passive racism mm-hmm. that exists. Oh yeah, no, he's he's casually racist, but he's not actively bigoted. Mm-hmm. And there's a big examination of that, and that was kind of the thing that we were talking about back in Men in Arms, not necessarily. To the definitely not to the level that Colin was in this, but that mm-hmm. you know, there were some places where his white man shows through. <laughs> oh God! Oh, that reminds me. I wanted to say, I've had this nagging feeling that there was something really fucking dumb I said about Cheery in one of our past things, uh, and I think specifically it was when I was talking about how mad I was that they changed Cheery's stuff in the TV show. Mm-hmm. for Cherry being non-binary. And I don't remember what I said. I think it was one of those things where I had the right idea, but like it didn't come out right. And I still maintain, as much as I'm in favor of a non-binary character, I thought Cherry was a bad one because Cherry being a woman is such a big part of Cherry's character. But I just keep having this like, what if I said something really bad? <laughs> I don't actually know. So... If I did, and you want to call me out on it, please. I mean, feel free to. Like, I'm not trying to uh, evade responsibility, but also, like... Especially because that would require re-listening to the episode to figure out what he said. And I don't know which episode it was, because we've talked about that TV show a lot. Right. Because it it came up in the news a lot. So, um, I mean, if anyone wants to call me out on it, great. Sure, please do. I I try to learn. But also, like, I'm not sure what I said. I just I'm pretty (laughs) sure there was a sentence there that, like, later on I was like... That's not what I meant to say. <laughs> so, Jingo, this is not my favorite watch book. Okay. But I could see that. First off, whenever I put up 
the new episodes of Word Balloons, I listen to the episodes again. And yes. I'd forgotten about this, but a couple weeks ago, I oh, had did to put I up... Did I say stupid shit there, too? No, a couple weeks ago, I had to put up, I think it was episode eight, where we were talking about Douglas Adams. And you were like, yeah, I mean, like, it's not... Like, I've never really read, like, Hitchhiker's Guide, because he's just too... Just a little bit too much of a cynic for me. And then I read this. <laughs> and I'm like... I've read Hitchhiker's Guide. I just haven't read it since right. high school. And I was like, oh, yeah, I think it's time for you to go back to Hitchhiker's Guide, bud. <laughs> I'm going to say, this is not my favorite watch book. That said, I still think it's a really incredible book. And it's kind of a watershed moment for the watch. Like, there's a, a, a transition that happens in this book that happens in a couple different ways that leads to a kind of, like, maturing of the watch and a change in the way that watch books are written. Partly, this is the time that Vimes... The books up to now, in a lot of ways, have been Vimes kind of accidentally climbing the social ladder. Mm-hmm. Guards, guards, he meets Sybil, decides to give a shit about the watch again. Men-at-arms, he marries Sybil, becomes a knight as a result, and people are forced to admit that the watch has to be a real thing, not just the, the, the place that they put their throwaway people. Feet of Clay is all about him now having the muscle to actually do some of the stuff that he wants to do to improve the city. Mm-hmm. Giving, uh, being a voice for the voiceless, protecting the innocent, yada, yada, yada. You know, doing what cops are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. This is the first time that he gets involved in actual international politics. He's not just captain of the city watch or commander of the watch or like everything takes place within Ankh-Morpork, sometimes within a couple of blocks. He's crossing the ocean. He's getting involved in like giant matters of state. And he's, and it makes sense because he has kind of been promoted up to a point that he is now one of the most powerful people in one of the most powerful cities in the entire disc world, which makes him one of the most powerful people on the disc at this point. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time that he really kind of comes out swinging with that power. Uh, which will lead to some of the best. Thud is generally considered the best book in the disc world, or not in, not necessarily in the disc world, although there's a strong argument for it, but of the watch books. Okay. Thud could not happen without Jingo. How many watch books are there after this? Uh, next up is The Fifth Elephant. Okay. Which involves Uberwald. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Then is the Night Watch, which basically, do you care if I do a very limited spoiler? Yeah, that's fine. He gets thrown back in time to the days of the watch when he was first joining. So mm. he sees, like, the watch as it's falling apart, and mm. it's kind of, you see how far he really has come. Okay. And then Thud, and then Snuff. So there are four more watch books after this. Okay. Vimes will have appearances in several other books. So we'll uh, Carrot and Angua. But those are the Vimes books. Mm, okay. Also, Carrot will have increasingly less to do as the books go on. And it becomes much more Vimes 
centric. Garrett still has stuff to do other than in Nightwatch where pretty no, much it's only that's a fine with me. Like, I the more we get a carrot, the less I like him. I like Carrot still. I just think that Carrot has kind of found the place where they need him to be and where he feels like he's doing the most good and it it kind of peaks here. I mean, I don't know what else he ends up getting up to because I haven't read the other books yet, but uh, at this point, I'm kind of just over how he treats everybody the same. I'm fucking over it. I'm tired of him. That's fair. Uh, we'll get to Fifth Elephant, and there's some stuff there that connects that a little more. But I can mm-hmm. see how it's Angua's running thing of, like, Carrot loves everyone equally, and that's oh, fucking hard to deal with. And he's also, uh, for the most part, and I feel like it was played up more in this one than in his previous appearances, but that's not a good trend look line for me. Is uh, he's lawful stupid, and I can't fucking stand lawful stupid. I don't know if I agree. He associates whispering with being underhanded, okay. so he whispers so, loud. Yes, I will give you that one. Um, but what I was going to say is, he's not lawful stupid. He is an archetype given human form. <laughs> And I think that's part of the reason why I like Fifth Elephant without going too into it. He's forced to break the archetype in Fifth Elephant. And it makes him more interesting than he's been than he was in this book by a lot. I do think it's really interesting in this book that Carrot automatically adapts to whatever the hero role is needed. Mm-hmm. He's originally he was the heroic young new person who really still believed in the law later on he was the like heroic captain that guides everyone through in this one they put him in a new place and literally he starts morphing around to to fit whatever archetype is needed in this case you know someone to join with the like he straight up tries to Lawrence of Arabia it Mm-hmm. And it's time to join with these rebels. And, you know, there's some white savior problematic trope in that. But uh, they even kind of call that out. Not as much as they maybe would have today. Mm-hmm. But, uh, like, he just automatically fits in wherever. Which makes him an interesting character. It also makes him a somewhat difficult character. Just, I can see how he would be increasingly difficult to write. Because he's... You know, we talk about how Carrot warps reality around him. I, that was the most interesting part of that to me was by the end uh, how uh, Vimes and even Ingwa to an extent were using that. Oh, yeah. And he was just kind of a tool, which also kind of plays into the lawful stupid a little bit. Carrot works best as a, not a foil, but a... Uh a sidekick to Vimes as opposed to like the main hero, in my opinion. Yeah. I, at this point, I don't even care if he's a sidekick. <laughs> I, I could go with a lot more knobs. Uh, cause Yo, I actually have thoughts about knobs in this one. Knobs. I th- my favorite thing about knobs is that he's, he's accidentally progressive. Mm hmm. He's so stupid that he accidentally calls others out on their hypocrisies because he doesn't actually understand. 
knobs. Man, this might be my favorite knobby story of all of them. Uh, and knobs get some really great stories throughout and just weird, goofy shit sometimes. Um, I would have kind of loved it if knobs ended up being trans or non-binary at the end of this because... Okay, so they do play a lot, and I've heard this talked about both ways. Nobby gets put in a dress, and it is played for humor a lot. And there's been a lot of conversation in the last couple of years about the British comedy tendency to put men in dresses as a form of humor. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Monty Python, that was like one of their main go-to shticks. And in a day where trans people are openly fighting for acceptance, it's just a little problematic in ways. But I also thought that it was actually legitimately interesting that Nobby seems happier than he has ever been in a dress Mm -hmm. and with people thinking of him as a woman. And it's kind of played with a little bit in the next book where he continues to find excuses to put on a dress. But then that's kind of quietly dropped, which is fine, whatever. But man, and I get this was 1996 when this was written. I'm Mm -hmm. not. I cannot hold it to the same standards as if it was written in 2022, but it would have been so interesting for me to have Nobby have that examination. I also can see how it'd be a little problematic to have the character whose like trait is he's gross be the trans character, but I don't know. Like I, I read a, a essay once about how like, they could have done something with this plot line and taken it further, and it would have been really interesting. Well, he even kind of starts to... I feel like Pratchett starts to play with that a little bit because he even calls out... There's like there's the footnote about normally in situations like this when the, the repugnant, not-at-all-feminine-looking man is put into a dress... Uh, there's always at least one man in the group that they encounter who is undescribably attracted to him. Yeah. However, this the laws Nobby. of the universe were going up against Nobby Nobs. <laughs> Nobby continues to be a character I have affection for. After this, I have a lot more trouble with Colin, and it's just because he goes from... In the books before this, Colin was like old-school sergeant who's not a bad man. He's just slow to change, dumb and slow to change. But from this point onward, it becomes significantly more. That trope becomes more problematic because, well, the casual racism, (laughs) the casual racism that gets introduced, not introduced in this book, but really played up in this book. And it continues to be a problem with Colin for ever and not as bad. Uh, I don't know. I I mean, I'm going to have to see how it actually plays out by reading it. But I feel like that fits just because he learns it about one group doesn't mean he learns it about. Well, let me say this. I'm not saying that it's bad writing. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that it's like he shouldn't have done this. I'm saying I have less patience for Colin as a character after Mm. this because I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ, Fred. Like, how have you not picked this up by now? And it's just part of, you know, the watch is growing. And Fred, the character who doesn't want to grow, there's only so far there's... I mean, okay, everyone's got their stuff that they're not as 
maybe as aware of as they should be, but there comes a point where you're like, I have sympathy, but you need to get the fuck over this. I do love the idea that at the end of this, the patrician's like, just put those two in like, make them traffic cops and let them have a job that's not dangerous at all for them. And like, we don't really have to deal with them anymore either. If we don't want to, <laughs> he also, he makes sure that they get a bonus for it. Mm-hmm. though. And I actually really enjoyed the play of those two having to deal with the patrician because they've never, the closest they've ever come is like in guards guards where they ask for an extra like dollar a month on a dartboard. So I think this book might've solidified this thought for me, but the patrician is uh, possibly the best version of Lex Luthor that's ever been written. I've never put it together like that, but yeah. The Patrician is who Lex Luthor thinks he is. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I'm a dick, but I do it for the good of the world. But really, it's all about me, is like Lex Luthor, while the Patrician just ends at the, like, I do it for the good of the world. And the Patrician does even set up... It, it was... I re-listened to Feet of Clay before I listened to this one, mm. uh, just to... Well, one, I had time, and then two, just to kind of get the flow going and remember, mm-hmm. because we looked it up. Our last episode on the Discworld was in, like, early 2021, so it's been, like, it's a been, year and a yeah. half since we did this. So it, it was just a good reminder. In Feet of Clay at the end, someone tells him, like, it occurs to me, sir, that if you didn't have a Vimes, you would have had to make one. And he goes, I think I did, or something <laughs> along those lines. And it really is set up on this one when he arrests, when Vimes arrests him and he's definitely like, arrest me. Yeah. And part of that is the patrician just having fun, which is interesting and fun to see because I mean, in guards, guards, the patrician may as well just be the villain. Mm-hmm. He's not the villain, but he's, My, yeah, he's not a good person. I feel like he has purposely helped Vimes climb. Like the moment that he saw this opportunity that Vimes is here and has this passion for looking after the little person, which the patrician does in his way. He wants the greater good of Ankh Morpork, but he thinks of the whole city. He wants, like, population as a whole better off. And he sees Vimes as this person who will call him out for one person, mm-hmm. for the individual. And I think he does help set Vimes up to be in a place of power where he can actively challenge the patrician at least to a point on that matter in a way that no one else can Mm -hmm. i mean because we've seen not that the head of the assassin's guild ever wants to fucking defend someone but like dr downey goes up against him or lord rust in this one and the patrician just fucking tears him apart and both of them are probably significantly smarter than vimes Mm mm-hmm I'm also loving Vimes more and more now that it, it, the books are less about him getting over his old self and more about him just realizing the situation he's in and doing the best that he can in I that. I cannot wait till we get to, honestly, the next three books are probably the best of the the watch books, in my opinion, especially in that respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a new level of maturity that Vimes has kind of found by the end of this book. Also, he's I, just a fun, uh, like, 
detective for me. He's fun as a detective. He's fun as a power player. He's a real scrapper, like a legitimate scrapper. And as much as I loved the Vimes is an alcoholic plotline that we really could not have gotten the Vimes we have without the previous three books. So much of, I mean, even through Feet of Clay was him, everyone expecting him to fall back into drinking and him not doing it. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still a con. I think even in this book, he has the like, he desperately wants a drink, but he can't have one because one drink comes across seven bottles or something like that. Like there's still reference to the, the fact that he's an alcoholic that doesn't go away, but it doesn't define him as much as it did yeah. when he was first quitting drinking, mm-hmm. which having been around a lot of people to quit drinking is just true of people. Mm-hmm. And it's a really fun growth point. Do we want to do a quick rundown of like the plot of this book? Cause we've just been, yeah, I mean, so, like, how much do we want to get into the, the twisty turnies at the end? Not much. It is I want to give like... at least a quick rundown, though. And there's because there's one thing I've wanted to ask you anyways that starts at the very beginning. Uh, this book starts with a island rising from the ocean. And it is so obviously an H.P. Lovecraft reference. Oh, it's not. It's not? It's not. It's actually a reference to a real thing that happened. Because when they talked about the tentacles and stuff, and I would have sworn... Well, I mean, you can take that as a tiny Lovecraft reference, because there are, like, a bunch of octopus designs and stuff. Isn't there a fucking Lovecraft book where an island or a mountain raises from the ocean? Yes, so... What book is that? It's been driving me... Call the Cthulhu. Oh, it's straight up just Call the Cthulhu. Okay. Because the the ancient city of Relia that... Cthulhu lies in. Well, and they do have a mention to Dagon Street, and Dagon is a yes. Lovecraft thing. Mr. Hong, who tried to open up the all-night fish shop on Dagon Street, gets mentioned in, like, ten books, and we never actually learn anything of, like, That's more than what we learn here. No, so, yes, the there's a bunch of, like, yes, it's a light Lovecraft reference. It's more of a reference to something that really happened. I, I was going to this ask, was a Lovecraft reference for years. Fernand Ferdinandale Island. Huh. It turns out I don't know shit about British history. So it's a volcanic island slash seamount uh, near Sicily that at least four times between 300 BC and now has risen and then sank back below the waters. <laughs> the last time this happened was in 1831 a captain of a British ship claimed it for Britain. And there were rights disputes going on between four different countries up until it sank a year later. Oh my God. But yes. So the (laughs) Island in this case, Leshp rises from the ocean. We do get fishermen fighting between it. Oh, that's the thing that I had the realization of. I kept having this thought. Because they talk about in the very early, these fishermen are having this, like, where they settled to catch curious squid, they can see the lights of Ankh-Morpork on one side of the water and the lights of Clatch on the other. And I was like, that seems wildly close together for me. Like, that's so weird. And then I remembered, 
I live in America. I live on the North American continent. So my concept of country size and distance is, much is a little fucky compared to like <laughs> Europe and Asia and the Middle East. And I mean, because if you get down into the Mediterranean area, Italy and Greece and then Eurasia is not that far from each or, you know. Yeah. Greece and Italy, Greece and Egypt alone, like, is not that far from each other, but pretty wildly different ecosystems and cultures and countries in ways that I don't think about. Because my closest neighbor is Canada. Yeah, I mean, if you pick the right direction from here, mm-hmm. you can drive about 14 hours before leaving the state. Yeah, which I've done in a day on a motorcycle. It sucks. Yeah, uh, or like I was God like, oh, damn cross- Eastern Montana, where you can watch your dog run away for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good. That is my favorite description of Eastern Montana. But I also was like that, you know, crossing the ocean, and my brain was like, that takes days and days and days. At best of situations, no, because they don't have to cross the entire goddamn Atlantic or Pacific Ocean. We're talking about the Circle C, right? The yeah, they, they yeah. But, you know, it's, and one, it's not a real place, so it can't mm-hmm. be closer. But I just, my perception of stuff is so <laughs> weird because of where I live and how we are organized. Mm-hmm. But because both Clatch, which is, again, very obviously a, I don't think there's it's a, a direct stand- Middle Eastern country, but. I was about to say, it's, it's a stand-in for any, like, Arab-majority country. Mm-hmm. A lot of the Muslim empires of the Middle Ages would fit in a lot with these. And as Clatch and Ankh-Morpork start arguing over who gets this island that is on one hand worthless, but on the other hand is at a uh, very important spot for political defensive whatever reasons, Ankh-Morpork decides that it's time to go to war, and they get pretty immediately racist about it. I do think that's an interesting thing they talk about in this book of, uh, there ends up being, let's be honest, there ends up being a hate crime Mm, against mm -hmm. some, uh, Clatchians that live in Ankh-Mor Park. And when Vime starts to realize there's a conspiracy going on about the higher level war stuff, he's like, oh, maybe that can be true about Gorif's shop too. Like, that this can all be the conspiracy being like, ah, oh, crap. I just want to believe that. Cause I don't want to believe that people are just bastards. Mm-hmm. And it does play the line. And it's one of the things I like about Vimes because carrot stands for the people because he believes to, to quote Vimes that people are jolly good chaps and no one wants to disappoint him. So they act like jolly good chaps. Vimes is a person who stands for the common man, the people, while being aware that the common man suck. That they're just people. They they try, they fail. Sometimes they're good people. Sometimes they're bastards. They're everything in between. But someone needs to stand for them just because everyone deserves someone looking mm-hmm. out for them. And this is one of the... In some ways, this is one of the darker takes on Ankh-Morpork because we do see the casual racism that comes out, especially around wartime. I mean, just think of 
Yeah. This is kind of a downer of a book. Yeah, it is. Just in general, not just because of like those things, but that's really weirdly funny at times too. I mean, like... it's really weirdly funny, but like, it doesn't have a happy ending. The people don't actually get brought to justice. Uh, Vimes doesn't actually get to act as a cop for the upper class. Instead, he gets that taken away from him to the point where, when he's describing the incident directly afterwards, he can't actually say for sure they won. Yeah. Although I also think that just has something to do with, I stopped a war, or I helped stop a war. But it gets directly turned back into politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, Prince Kadrim doesn't uh, face actual justice by it. He faces uh, getting run out by mob justice, which was something that Pratchett has decried over and over again over the course of this, and how stupid mobs are. Mm -hmm. Like I said, this book is... Grim. Yeah, and also, like, reread Hitchhiker's Guide. It's so much happier than this. <laughs> and, and has such a more of a positive viewpoint of people and of groups. I, I <laughs> did admit, when I talked about that, that it has I been, know. like, 20 years since I read it, and I should probably give it another shot. Yeah, I was just reading this, and that <laughs> popped to mind because it was so recently, and I'm like, Jesus! <laughs> also, uh, the views on... The couple times it comes up in this, which is not nearly as often as in, like... Uh, feet of clay but like uh the pretty narrow view of religion and how if you're paying attention to some of the details you realize that um the miracles that uh what's his name the the handing out papers uh visit the infidel with explanatory pamphlets or wash pot i don't know why they call him wash pot but the the miracles that constable visit brings up are all later explained by the incidents with donkeys on minarets. <laughs> I love the one where it's, uh, they were fed with rain. Yeah, that was just rain. <laughs> yeah, it was just rain. <laughs> I do like, this one starts to introduce a couple of characters who, into the Watch Mythos, because we've got, you know, Vimes at the head of the Watch. Mm -hmm. We have the, like, A-list Watch members who are uh, uh, Carrot, Angua, I would say Detritus and Cheery, being the, the, the like number one people that Vimes can fall back on when he needs to. I was hoping for more Cheery in this. There's barely any Cheery. Cheery gets more in later books. She Her biggest book is Feet of Clay by a lot. Mm. But I mean, it's not her only book, and it's not her only book where she's important in it. She's just like, I mean, as I said, I really listened to feet of clay mm -hmm. she's the b plot in a lot of ways in that book right like it's right. about her and her journey and she doesn't have a book where her and her journey is the b plot like in the same way but she does have several places where she's hella important even in snuff which is the last one and is in a lot of ways the weakest of the watch books partly just because it was one of the last discworld books and Terry had Alzheimer's and was dying of it. Mm -hmm. So, like, he was doing... They're still good books, but they're, you know... You can tell that he's like, well, I gotta try to wrap some shit up because this might be my last one. Right. Her best moment might not come up until that book, depending on how you look at stuff. Um, But, like, there's that A-list. There's, like, those four. And then we start to get the B-list, which is people like Nobby and Colin, who always come up, always have some stuff, but are not 
the immediate fallback. I mean, I don't remember if it's this book or the last one. They talk about those two going off duty and everyone's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> um, but we get more of what are, I think of as kind of the C-list watchmen in this one. And it's not that they're bad watchmen. It's just they're, you know, he's, they're people he can rely on, but they're not the inner circle. Mm-hmm. And it's, we get more with Constable Visit. We bring Red Shoe into the watch. Right. Uh, and Reg has actually shown up in a previous book. Okay. Where he's actually mentioned all the way back in Men at Arms. Oh, shit. Okay. Where he, because he's staying at um, the same boarding house that Engua is. Oh. And she talks about a zombie whose arms fall off when he tries to, that's Red Shoe. Right, okay. And that boarding house has a whole book where they are the B-plot. Okay. It's a death-centric book with them as the, like, everything going around. And Reg is a major character in that. And then they bring him into the watch here, and he's going to be one of the more recurring watchmen going forward. He actually has a lot of fun. He's a lot of fun in uh, Night Watch, but that's not till later. It doesn't matter for this. And we meet Buggy Squires, who will appear more often from this point. Very, very briefly. It's one of those Terry Pratchett, like, drop a moment in and then pull them in later when it's mm. interesting to me. Buggy is the gnome. Oh, right. The, uh, yeah. The knoll. No, no, the gnome. Oh, the little gnome. The okay, little yeah, gnome yeah, yeah, that yeah. was standing on detritus's. Uh, Dorful also falls under the sea list. The the uh, golem, um, who I wish went with them, but I think straight up didn't solely because he would have weighed so much on that fucking ship. <laughs> You're pointing out the Lawrence of Arabia things. Uh, the other thing that jumped out, being not like being American. The references he made to the Kennedy assassination were fucking hilarious. The grassy knoll. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Trying to deal with, like, figuring out how to enhance their projectile with magic for the magic bullet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, God. The, there's, there was a second shooter. Mm-hmm. There's no way that he could have shot this fucking shot. Yeah. Oh. I actually really love the bit where Vimes has just gotten so tired that he starts just disassociating while he's supposed to be leading this yeah uh leading this parade and then he accidentally saves a life because (laughs) of it um i also like and it's something that's kind of shown here vimes is not a gentleman who's a gentleman he's not a power player who is and carrot keeps trying to make him be one Mm -hmm. when they're like oh everyone will feel better if you give us this, like, rousing speech, sir, and no one ever feels better after Vimes' speech because they're fucking terrible, but there actually is, like, a good unifying message in them. Mm-hmm. If you can get there. So, like, Carrot's wrong but not wrong at the same time. Um, God, what was it? Carrot gives that speech at the very end that's just fucking terrible, but it gets everybody going. Yeah, that is basically <laughs> like, we're going to fucking die and not win, but... Yeah, I can't remember oh, what it God. is, but it was fucking good. I know you're really done with Carrot in this one. That said, I really fucking like the whole he's decided that he can use football to bring people together. And it starts with such a small thing of like little street gangs. Then he turns it into like big fucking countries may as well be just fucking street gangs. It's the same fucking idea. I didn't really connect that to that bit in the beginning. Which makes me like that book ending a little bit more. 
Uh, but I just, like, I thought it was a neat reference to the Christmas game. That too. Brits love to reference the Christmas game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, it's the greatest story in World War One. so fair enough. Yeah, if you, so, so reference it. If but. you do not know, the Christmas game is, uh, for one night during World War One, a during Christmas, an armistice was declared between, or at least a, a ceasefire was declared between both sides, and the Germans and the British soldiers just went and hung out and, like, traded gifts and played football mm-hmm. together. And it was this amazing, life-affirming moment of peace that is admittedly kind of destroyed the next day when they went straight back to gassing each other with mustard gas and trying to kill each other. And it is one of the most interesting moments in human history in some ways of just, like, the strange connections and also the disconnect of war. And this is this is just a weird little and I don't know how up to date this still is, but it's a weird little factoid. It kind of makes sense from what we know, like World War 1 is fucking horrendous, like you said, there was the gassing and all that other stuff, but also what we know of some of the other details of it, World War 1 changed the way that soldiers were trained. Mhm. Because it was uh, determined through whatever ways, after action reports, blah, 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 all sorts of whatever they could get their hands on of uh, soldiers' writings and stuff. It's estimated that only one in three soldiers actually fired intentionally at an enemy. Wow. Most of the soldiers in the trenches were just knowingly firing above people's heads just so that they wouldn't get in trouble from their own side. World War One is such an interesting war, and it's mm-hmm. one that we don't talk about much as Americans mm-hmm. because we're not that important in it. Like, we're in it. And we help tip the sides on one side, but it's not... It's a British and German and French. It is a heavily European story in many ways, shapes, and forms. Yes. While World War II, Americans have done a real job as portraying themselves as the heroes, partly through amazing propaganda and partly because the other side was the Nazis, (laughs) which sure changes things, but it does make it interesting. You know, it's weird to talk about like, oh man, like, the British and the Germans stopped fighting for a day and played football together. You put that in World War One, and it's an interesting kind of heartwarming story. In World War Two, man, the British and the Nazis stopped fighting and exchanged gifts for a night. Is like, that rings differently, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> um, so, and I just, for me, World War One is an infinitely more interesting war, as kind of horrific as that is to say, because mm-hmm. it was Jesus Christ a terrifying and terrible event for everyone but it's it's so much I think it's because it's less cinematic tell that to 1917 <laughs> <laughs> I just well yeah okay less easily cinematic mm-hmm. I mean again World War II the bad guys are the Nazis they are like the 20th century, now 21st century, definition of bad guys. 
the Kaiser was assassinated. Not even the Kaiser. Well, it was Kaiser Wilhelm that. No, it wasn't Kaiser Wilhelm. Archduke it was Franz Ferdinand. Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, so the Kaiser declared war is a much more complicated <laughs> than like, gotta go save people from mm-hmm. Hitler. Um, but I think this book, because as I said, once I realized that like this was not allegory for fucking Iraq, although it might have had some allegory for Iraq because this is after the first Iraq war. Right. And started looking in. There's so many World War One bits in it. World War One was also interesting because it's where the various empires, the various European empires, really started losing control of the Middle East, of India, of the Asian mm-hmm. countries that they controlled, the Asian territories, um, which is a good thing. I'm not really here for British imperialism or French or. Dutch. It's so weird to think about Dutch imperialism in the modern day. Like, I never think of the Dutch as a big empire, but they were for a long time. Mm-hmm. But it does, with that World War One reference, it does make it harder to have a good guy side. And I think that's one thing that this book does. As much as you kind of want to, on some level, cheer for Ankh Morpork, because... It's Ankh Morpork. I fucking love Ankh yeah. Morpork as a place. But then they put Rust in charge, who is just terrible. Oh, God, he's the worst. If you want a really good kind of let's skewer some of the worst bits of British imperialism in a funny way, the final season of Blackadder that takes place during World War One, that it does a pretty good job of setting up how the Brits were operating at that point because the British empire was the most powerful empire in the world Mm -hmm. and it was already having its problems. It had been for centuries, but the Brits were like, we're so good at war. We took out this single solitary tribe that didn't have guns and we rolled in with the British army and the might of like all of the stuff we stole from India and these places and like, what a surprise. We won. Obviously, we're just the best. And then we went up, not we, but they went up against an equal or more powerful foe and went, oh, no. And I think that's a whole lot of that. And like neither side, the the people on top on both sides of these are bastards. Prince Kadram is in no way a good person, mm-hmm. even though he's up against Rust, who is just he makes my fucking skin crawl. Rust might be the Ankh Morpork person that I hate most that comes up through this. As much as like Dr. Downey of the Assassin's Guild or uh, Croesus, who was the guy that got the former Assassin's Guild guy that got taken over by the Gon. Okay, yeah. As much as they made like my fucking skin crawl, Rust, because he's he mixes that malevolence with stupidity in a way that just drives me up a wall. Two things. We we already kind of talked about it a little bit, but something I just thought about, because I wish I would have read this just a little bit earlier in the week so I could have had a little bit more time to put my thoughts together rather than finishing it this morning. That's such a fine line with pod, like going through stuff for podcasting of like, do I want to finish it that day so it's real fresh in my mind or like a week before so I have a lot of time to think about it? But also a lot of time to potentially forget. Mm-hmm. Um, I do appreciate any time, almost, I, 
I can't think of any time when it didn't happen that it might have, but any time in this book somebody is casually racist, there's somebody next to them to point out how their side does something similar. And it's almost always Nobby Knobs, which is why he's accidentally progressive. <laughs> Although the patrician does it a few times, mm -hmm. uh, especially in that first encounter with everybody pulled together. We are one of my favorite things was when he was saying in the beginning, like, yeah, the island of Lesh has, has risen and our young men are going out to explore and, so and entrepreneurs or something yeah. like that. And, and their men have gone out to raid and, and pillage it and da 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 da. And then, and then, like, I think Downey says something, and then the, like, veterinary is like, oh, I'm sorry. I got that first part mixed around there. <laughs> I had that backwards. We're the, yeah. like, it's interesting to see Leonard DeQuarm leave mm. the room. And because we've talked about how, so Leonard, who's obviously Leonardo I da Vinci. I loved all the obvious descriptions <laughs> of things that Leonardo da Vinci, da Vinci created, did fucking sketch. Or at least come up with ideas for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we keep seeing Leonard and he talks about how he's kind of grateful to have this like light, airy room and all of the paints and pencils and crafting materials he could possibly want. And that does sound extremely tempting to me <laughs> at times. I'm not going to lie. And how he's kind of grateful not to have to deal with the real world. And then we see him here having to deal with the real world. And you kind of start to understand why the patrician is like, I cannot let this man leave. Like, right. He, cannot stop making weapons <laughs> and he doesn't know he's doing it everything he makes is a fucking weapon oh this would be i think this would be a good way to uh for mining when we need to get mountains out of the way and the patrician being like is this the time is now when i kill him for his own good and then the revelation at the end that not only is leonard happy to be in this room with all of the traps around it, he built the traps himself and like purposely locks himself in there to make sure that like, mm -hmm. it, it's not just he was trapped is he built the trap. Weird thing that I did experience while reading this, this week was like, uh, me and my girlfriend, we send each other memes back and forth mm -hmm. fucking all day long. Yeah, yeah. Like fucking 50 a day. It's how it's, you communicate as a millennial. I understand. It's, fucking stupid the amount that I have saved on my phone at any, any given time. Anyway, just this week, before reading the book, I had ran into one where I was like, oh, this is, it's like a Tumblr post, and it's obviously like this first little bit that they're referencing is obviously Terry Pratchett, and like, this is just kind of funny. And it was the Pavlovian response bit. The, wait, I'm sorry, remind me what there's a there's a bit where they bring up um, a Pavlovian response, and it's because uh, he had trained uh, dogs to salivate at strawberry meringue. And she was like, is there something I'm missing? And I was like, yeah, because a strawberry meringue dessert is a Pavlova. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> so it was a Pavlovian response. Definitely did not. Well, I ran in, I that. sent her that meme, and then, like, two days later, ran into it in this book when I had <laughs> not known which book it came from when I sent it. I just recognized the writing style as being Pratchett. <laughs> That's the thing I love about Terry Pratchett. You read it, and you're really quickly like, I know who this fucking is. Yeah.
But that was weird. I was just like, wait, didn't I just... And then I almost made her... Because of that, I almost made her a pavlova for her birthday, but went with something else instead. Nice. <laughs> it is interesting, as much as I am... I am comfortable saying I'm anti-military while still, like, thinking a lot of people join the military for various really legitimate reasons and not saying everyone who's a soldier is a bad person. Mm-hmm. Though I do feel the need to put that little disclaimer every time I'm like, the military's bad. And that's just an America thing. We're so like, military's bad. Maybe we shouldn't be going to war. Why do you hate the troops? Ah, God, no. No, I'm saying. <laughs> um, but it's interesting how comfortably I'm like, no, we should absolutely not go to war. The military's dumb. But I still get caught up in some of the like romanticism, especially of like old school British. Mm. military stuff and I think it's 100% because I watched the Sean Bean television movies about sharps have you ever seen these Mm, no no I never did Sean Bean plays I have that name right right the the guy who played who dies all the time yeah Yeah. he dies all the time he doesn't die in this one he's in like 10 of these and they are stories written about the Revolutionary War, not Revolutionary War, the Napoleonic Wars. Okay. Where he plays a soldier who was raised from the ranks, which, you know, back in the day to be a, a, mil, a officer in the British military, you had to be rich. You had to be a gentleman. Mm-hmm. He was not a gentleman. He was a sergeant who saved um, Lord Wellington. And oh, okay. was promoted to lieutenant and as kind of a thanks. Mm-hmm. Like, because the line is like, oh, you've done me a jolly good turn, so I'm going to do you a jolly bad one. Because Brightside, he's a lieutenant now. He has power. He has money. He has actual, like, social progression. But every other officer is going to treat him like absolute garbage because he's not mm-hmm. a gentleman. But there is something about those stories and watching them as a kid that I get caught up in some of the romanticism of the military of that era. Even though it was a terrible, terrible experience for every single person. And I get it even in some of these in the same way that Carrot starts to get caught up in the like, all right, man, we're the, the soldiers are a bunch of jo- or actually, no, not even Carrot, Willikins. Mm. gets caught into it of like, I've got to go help out my country. And like, I'm, I'm getting caught up in like the horrors of war, but also I'm still the, I love Willikin's thing here, even though it's directly horrifying that this like Butler who hasn't really had a personality up to this point. Right. Suddenly gets sent to war and we find out that he is a, horrifying battle monster who like <laughs> bites off someone's nose and randomly gets into like there's only one nose <laughs> super violent fights of like let's go boys but then is still Willikins the butler anytime he runs into oh is that you sir Samuel I love that he's Willikins the butler and then just breaks mid sentence because he's also a sergeant at that time to issue commands and just goes full sergeant and then, like, back into the sentence he was saying. I can't believe I'm going to say this. Willikins starts to get some really interesting character development. Not until Thud. 
But in Thud and Snuff, Willikins both has some really fun moments. And they're like, Jesus Christ, are you secretly a badass? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, throughout the whole... This is a weird one to talk about because I don't want to give away every twist and turn of the plot, but I do want to, like, just yeah, yeah. talk about this book. Well, I was going to say, I don't... Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a reveal, but I have to bring it up. I, I actually laughed pretty fucking hard at how ridiculous the 71 hour Ahmed reveal is. I really see. I was actually, I was meaning to ask you about this because I accidentally spoiled myself on 71 hour. Is it Ahmed or Ahmed? Because I listened to the audiobook and he's called Ahmed in that one, but I don't know what the, so from what I understand is that in different places, it's written different ways. Oh, okay. So in just the written form, like if you just read Jingo, it's written Ahmed. Okay. However, in like the dictionary to Discworld and like two or three other official like tie-ins, it would it's be Ahmed. Ahmed. Okay. Um, I'm going to continue using Ahmed just because I've been hearing that for the last two days as I've been listening to the audiobook, but I mean, mm-hmm. whatever floats your boat on either one. I had been trying to look up something else about the watch before I listened to Jingo, and he gets mentioned in the Wikipedia article about the watch. Mm. So I had been spoiled, even though I was like, wait, shit, I haven't read about this guy yet. I need to stop. It was just I had picked up enough right. that I knew about him. He's interesting because he is not a good human being, but he's not a good human being in a similar way that Sir Samuel will in the Vimes will mm-hmm. kind of be a almost feel like for the lesser man. I almost feel like he's a little bit more akin to the patrician than even Vimes. He exists somewhere in between mm-hmm. because he doesn't have, he just doesn't have the amount of power the patrician has. Mm-hmm. He, he's kind of like, Vimes, if Vimes had the patrician's morality. Mm -hmm. He exists somewhere between the two people. But, I mean, I compare him to Vimes because those two directly compare each other. Yeah. Well, and... I feel like he would be more like Vimes if he was working in a system that allowed him to be. Yeah, exactly. But they don't even, as they bring up, they don't even have courts. As the much as I am, decide. as much as I am wildly against the death penalty, it's really hard to argue. Oh no, you shouldn't have killed that man who poisoned a well and killed like thirty something people. I'm like, oh yeah, you know what? Hard to say you're wrong there. You're the only person in five hundred miles, oh, and God. I get it. I don't necessarily approve, but I get it. I find anything about the desert so interesting. I had the same thing when I was reading Dune. Because I don't, I have never done anything remotely like trying to survive in the desert, and I would die so fast. But having lived deep out in the woods in a way that I was perfectly safe, but like, if I had been dumb, I could have died pretty easily at the same way. Mm -hmm. There is a level of like kind of understanding of living in any kind of wilderness for extended periods of time. And they keep talking in this one about how deserts are where religions are formed. And really what they mean is Abrahamic religions in that one. I mean, not just, but like, you know, Mm -hmm. Judaism, Christianity, Islam, all of them tended to be pretty Middle Eastern. 
Yeah, not Judaism as much, although there is a heavy Jewish population in the Middle East. Um, I do. I think there's a. I mean, I think it's one of those things, though, that you can account for worldwide. We're just more accustomed to talking about those religions mm-hmm. because. But there's deserts everywhere. Oh so. yeah, but I mean, there is a kind of understanding that I got from it, and the talk about looking up in the sky and and. Uh, desperately trying to find someone to put up in there. I get because I remember it was actually my favorite thing about the Montana Conservation Corps, which is a weird thing to have my favorite thing be. But most nights I wake up and got to pee at about two in the morning. Mm -hmm. But when I was in a tent, 10 miles from the nearest road, a hundred miles from the nearest town, getting up at night to go pee and looking up in the sky with zero light pollution Every night was one of the most amazing moment, one of the most amazing things I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. And like, we live in Montana, so we, I mean, we have light pollution, but not terrible light pollution right. on the scale of things. And, and I, I live, grew up out in the sticks. Yeah, but. and I live out of, I mean, I mm-hmm. live 10 miles out of Stevensville, which is 20 miles outside of Missoula, which is places that if you don't live in Montana, you've probably never really heard <laughs> of. So... I get pretty good light stuff, but like, Jesus Christ, the night sky is impossible to describe if you don't have that experience of like zero light pollution and seeing it. And I can only imagine what it's like in a place like the desert where everything is already so intense. Mm-hmm. And it's all sky. And it's all sky. Yeah. I. If it's not land, it's sky. I live in the mountains and the forest, man. Like... Seeing flat freaks me out anyways. I just imagine seeing flat at night. I'm sure it's fucking incredible, and I think I would probably go insane. I mean, it's weird, because we could go into what this book is about, but I feel like this book explains itself pretty well. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not hiding shit on using uh, using Nobby, Vimes, and the Patrician. There's no bones about what fucking Pratchett feels about these subjects. And it'd be so easy to write it off as just war is bad, but it's so much more complicated than just, I mean, war is bad, but like there's, it's just a really fascinating examination of how different people react to the concept of war, even. The, (laughs) The thing I kept wondering is what the vimes of the other trouser leg must have been making of... I kept thinking of this, too. ...of the fucking announcements that he would have been getting from his disorganizer. So, uh, just to explain... Okay, so vimes has the disorganizer, which is basically um, Pratchett making fun of... I mean, what in the modern day would be a cell phone, but back then was... stuff like beepers or... Or like a pocket organizer. Yeah, pocket organizer. And they were fucking terrible because the tech wasn't Mm -hmm. the idea was there the tech was not and Pratchett was actually a pretty big fan of technology so I'm sure he had one and went uh but when Vimes tells the the disorganizer and the imp inside to tell him what is coming up as opposed to just like why am I putting this stuff in if it's stuff I already know like you should be telling me about my appointments not me telling you to tell me about my appointments but thanks to weird stuff, he gets the pocket disorganizer of the time where of him staying in Ankh Morpork as opposed to him going to Clatch. Mm-hmm. 
and yeah, I kept thinking about like as everyone's dying around him, the the disorganized are going bingly, 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 beep. Meet with twenty four or seventy one hour Ahmed and save Clatch, and he's just like, wait, what? <laughs> no, that shit was dark. Yeah. Was... Well, it was kind of funny at first, and there's a little bit where it seems like it's better, and then it, like, it keeps they keep just keep going into war. Yeah. Eight oh one a.m. Death of of Constable Cheery. Eight oh five a.m. Death of Constable Dorful. Eight ten a.m. Death of Captain Carrot. And you're like, whoa, shit! Things just do not work for you here. Mm-hmm. But the, but earlier on, there's that bit where like when they're out um, in the storm, mm-hmm. and it's like, yeah, you're just like having a chat with. <laughs> knob on the parapet like during breakfast or something like the storm bit was interesting but kind of weird and i get that there were bits parts of it was just pratchett playing and then parts of it were you know like rains of fish and stuff but because it's pratchett it's sardine mm-hmm. tins instead of storms of fish and i just felt the whole thing was kind of odd like, i it felt was it was odd thing. because it it seemed to be making fun of superstition in a world where it's not superstition and the storm actually had magic. It is probably the closest critique I have to this book. And it's not that this book is perfect. As I said, it's not even my favorite of the watch books, but it just, I don't know that it actually added anything to the story. I think Pratchett just wanted to write a weird fucking magic storm Mm. as opposed to like, this is necessary for the plot or for any moment of character growth. Yeah. I don't know. It was weird. I had a hard time following through that section. Like it's what happens with Pratchett every once in a while. He gets an idea and it's not even that it's a bad idea, but it might just not fit in with the story and it kills the pacing for a couple of pages. I was going to, the one thing I'm, I'm starting, it's not that I don't like, but it does get kind of annoying at times is Cratchit does give us some action. Like there's the bit of like Vimes going through the fucking fire and rescuing the the lady trapped in the building and Mm -hmm. stuff. But he doesn't, he takes every opportunity he can to avoid writing any action and just has the characters tell you about it afterwards. Fifth elephant will have significantly more action and thud as well. Although thud is interesting because he does and doesn't do that at the same time, but it's also Vimes' coolest and most terrifying and goofiest scene. All I can't, I'm sorry, I'm talking about books you haven't read yet. So good. Um, but does it actually happen on page? Because he has yes. a tendency to have a lot of things start to happen, and then you have a cutaway to somebody else making a observation in a different place that's still thematically appropriate, but not actually uh, going on with what's happening. And then you cut directly back to after the action has happened and they're cleaning up. Yes, it does happen, but (laughs) the character it's Vimes is not in his right mind at the same time. So there is a, it's happening, but there's also kind of, confusion about what's happening while it's happening. So there is a, a moment afterwards where some of it's, it's, it's so good, but it is. And then there's a straight up Vimes is being hunted. Like 
they don't do chapters in Discworld books, really. But mm-hmm. there's a Vimes is being hunted ongoing scene that is extremely action heavy that will come up. I, I agree with your critique. It is, uh, in some ways it is Pratchett pulling a, like, he likes to set up what would be the setup action scene and then not doing it because it's Pratchett making commentary on the genre, but it does sometimes just turn into Pratchett doesn't actually like writing <laughs> fight scenes. That and for me, it's mostly that it just is jarring at times because mm-hmm. I'm like, cool, this is all flowing. Oh, it's not flowing. Oh, and now I'm just being told about what it was going to flow into, and it's kind of what I thought anyway. Okay, there are other books as he goes along that will have significantly better action scenes. You are right, especially in this one, it is really jarring where he we get him into the burning building. We get him jumping off of the roof to swing into a window. And then then the next time we see it, it's, yeah, it's done. And it's not even a bad writing thing, but it is a jarring moment. And I feel the only reason it stood out to me is because I feel like like that happens continually throughout these books. Mm -hmm. It'll be like... Vimes oh, is chasing will... this person up this fucking tower and da 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 and he confronts him in the room and then we see him afterwards and then it'll be like a paragraph long conversation between uh Nobby and Colin and then we'll go back to it and it'll be like 20 minutes afterwards and they're talking about what happened he does still do that don't get me wrong <laughs> there is just I am like my brain is now being like no there's like these fight scenes and this cool action scene and then like <laughs> Shut up, brain. (laughs) I don't know. It's, I don't mind that storytelling technique. It's just that it's become often enough that it's starting to feel like a speed bump. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Cratch is probably my favorite writer, but that doesn't mean he's a perfect writer by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) Gaiman's probably my favorite author, and 90% of his stories are stories about stories. Yeah. He's, he's got his thing. (laughs) Yeah. I do like that, uh, just thinking of Gaiman, the reason that Crowley in Good Omens always wears his dark sunglasses, even indoors, and occasionally walks into things as a result, was because Gaiman used to do that in the 90s, and Terry Pratchett thought that was funny as fuck, so he wrote it into the book. They wrote together, mm-hmm. not just in a book making fun of Gaiman, but in the book he was writing with Gaiman. I mean, just imagine Gaiman being like, hey... Oh my god, I smiled so wide when I heard Gaiman's voice as the undead crow. Right? <laughs> that was one where I turned to Marge and I was like, that's, that's Gaiman. We're talking about Sandman again, yeah. just in case you don't... <laughs> that's one where I turned to Marge and I was like, that's Gaiman. She's like, what? I'm like, that's that's Neil. I definitely, I was working on something and looked up and Cece was like, yep. Because <laughs> she's with you. Gaiman's probably her favorite writer, mm-hmm. so... I don't know if I really have anything else. Not really. Unless we want to get into and even then it's just it's not fun to like and then this scene happened and then this scene happened and then blah 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 blah. So yeah. Um I did oh, I guess the one other thing was I did end up having to look up what that fucking degree was, because it was just I'm usually pretty good with Latin roots and can stumble my way through some Latin. See it. Later, they, they say but... it like three paragraphs later, but I stopped immediately. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is that? What was it again? It was it's, like... Um, uh, uh, Dr. Adami Flobelli Dulcis. 
which is a doctor of Sweet Fanny Adams. Okay, that's what I thought. He loves Sweet Fanny Adams. Like, that's his... Which is sweet fuck all. Yeah. <laughs> he just uses that in almost every book. He finds a way to do Sweet Fanny Adams. Although the story behind how that became a term is actually really fun. I don't up. actually know that. So, Fanny Adams is what the soldiers, I believe in World War I, started calling their tin rations. Because they were so small, they it was... So they weren't calling them because it was so small. It became known as being nothing because the rations were so small and wouldn't fill you up. Mm -hmm. That's where the term changed. They called, like, their little sardine rations and rations full of chopped up meat and sausages and what have you, a Fanny Adams, because a couple years previously, somebody, some gal had been abducted, murdered, and dismembered, Ugh. named Fanny Adams. God, that's dark. Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I'm on a year of listening to last podcast at least weekly, so I've been listening to nothing but fucking dark shit, but, like... Every once in a while, I learn the origin of a phrase and be like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So that's why. And then why it changed. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I think I'm, I, I don't have too much more on this book, to be yeah. honest. Uh, which is fine. This is mm -hmm. where the length of our episodes are supposed to be, and we never <laughs> actually manage that. So that's great. Uh, any recommendations? Other than, honestly, Jenko's really good and is worth your time to read. Uh, yeah, just because you mentioned James Cromwell up at the, the beginning of this episode, <laughs> I'm going to recommend my favorite parody of murder mysteries. Oh, really? Murder by Death, uh, the 1976 movie from Neil Simon, who was the writer, playwright of The Odd Couple. I've heard of this one, but I've never seen it. It is the first film appearance of James James Cromwell which is why I brought it up its opening credit sequence is drawn by Charles Adams it's one of the few movies that Truman Capote appears in Peter Falk is in it a few other people like the cast is fucking loaded for 76 especially for 76 comedians and it's basically this millionaire invites all these world famous detectives to his mansion mm -hmm. he tells them there's going to be a murder here tonight if you guys are actually the greatest detectives in the world you'll be able to figure it out the lights go off and when they come back on he's been stabbed okay so i've seen bits of this but i've never fully okay oh alec guinness is in it god damn alec guinness in that movie is fantastic he's the butler he has just a one of my favorite stupidest gags of all time is his name, which is James Sir Benson Mum. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking fantastic. Highly recommend Murder by Death. All of the, the greatest detectives that show up are all parodies of like uh, Charlie Chan and Poirot and Miss Marple and Sam Spade. And <laughs> hmm. Um, for me, I am going to go with the band American Murder Song. Okay. They are... Okay, first of all, the song of theirs that I love the most, I did not realize was the cover of a Killers song mm. called uh, Jenny Was a Friend of Mine. Oh, yeah, that's a good song. They do a really weird, intense version of it. The American Murder Song tend to do... They wrote an entire album about the Donner Party. 
Okay. Or they do other like, you know, murder songs of 1862 or something like that. So it's, it's strange. It's really kind of intense, but not like hard rock intense. It, it's kind of a mix of like, when I say old school Americana, I mean like 19th century Americana with some rock music. Mm. Mostly songs about death. I mean, literally they have a song just called murder. Okay. Where the main line is murder, 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 murder. Like, um, I've put them on at least one of the playlists that I've made for the other uh, podcasts that we do. I'm just going to say that's kind of an interesting, that's kind of interesting because Murder by Death is also the name of an Americana rock group that named themselves. <laughs> they could probably just tour together. I have no idea why this is the one I chose. And actually, now that I know it's the killers, I'm going to listen to Jenny was a friend of mine. And you know, when you hear a cover of a song, not realizing it's a cover and then you hear the original and you're like, well, this isn't right. <laughs> so I'm going to try very hard not to be judgy because I actually really liked Hot Fuzz's album. Oh, real quick, back on Mortar, but I forgot to mention Peter Sellers is also in it, as well as Dame Maggie Smith. God, that's such a cast. I knew Peter Sellers was in it. Um, and David Niven, James Coco, Eileen Brennan. This has got to be stressful for James Cromwell. <laughs> Just This is my first movie ever. Here's some of the greatest actors in history. I will, ooh, I will warn um, Peter Sellers' part hasn't aged well. He is in yellow face in this movie. You know what? That's not wildly uncommon for some people. I love Peter Sellers, but there's definitely stuff that I'm like, yep, that was the 60s. But he's playing the, the Charlie Chan parody. Mm. Ugh. Ugh. Um, next time, we are... Going to be fucking goofy. Yeah. Let's just be real honest with this. We're going to be goofy. We are covering the Kyle Higgins run of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Power Rangers. Uh, I don't think either one of us got that theme song right there. Oh, I did. Uh, but, That's the very end. Okay. That's... <laughs> It is, I think it's like the first 25 issues of the run by Boom Comics. I think we've talked about also watching the first episode of Power Rangers. Just because I don't, if I've ever seen the first episode of Power Rangers, it was when I was six. So I'm curious. I was going to say something. I'll save it for the episode. We're going to do a whole episode on this shit. Look forward to it. Don't necessarily expect depth from our next episode. I think that's what I'm saying here. But that's for next time. In the meantime, this is General Nerdery. We're your generals of nerdery. I'm Zach. I'm Tyler. Dismissed. Hi, everybody. General Tyler here. If you like the show, please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. Also, if you could rate and review us however you're listening to us right now, or preferably over at Apple Podcasts, we would super appreciate it, as the whole world is around on algorithms, and we want to be all up in them, getting our voice out to more places. Uh, also, I mean, tell your friends, we always appreciate that. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, ask us questions, give us comments, email us generalnerderypod at gmail.com. You can also contact us through our website, www.generalnerdcast.com. Uh, while you're there, check out all of our back catalog or click the links up at the top as we are part of the Earverm Podcast Network. Uh, go check out all of our sister shows. We're involved with most of them, so if you already like listening to us talk, 
it might be in your best interest. And if you want to check out everything from the network, head over to earvrm.com, E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com. We'd super appreciate it. Love you all. Have a good one.